everybody at home and welcome to episode nine of Here's the Thing, Eight Minute Movies. We're two thirds of the way through this podcast and I'm finally starting to get okay at doing the intros. The trick Yay. is to write all the words down. <laughs> How are you? What, 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 you can't you can't preempt me. I can. And Jesus. I will. You you shit. Um Who are you? Who are you? Uh, I am Kieran. And you are Peter. And, and now, together we are the Beatles. Su- surprised man. No, um, not, <laughs> not in this case, no. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm doing alright. Uh and and you're doing alright. I hear I hear there was a Black Friday sale. Yes, uh, we're we're deep into the Black Friday sales and what that means for people who make music on computers is cheap digital instruments of all kinds well i say cheap that run ludicrously expensive and black friday is generally a way of getting a few hundred pounds off those sometimes and uh, so yeah i've been been indulging a little bit getting orchestral samples and um and a nice bassoon a nice solo bassoon oh that's um that's good it's it's nice that you've purchased things which um will help you to make music that's fun what i bought is the most expensive lego set i've ever got and i i am ashamed (laughs) (laughs) we discussed this beforehand and i i thought i i wasn't going to tell anyone but i've decided to own up if unless i edit this out (laughs) okay what what is the lego set oh it's um it's a cargo train okay it's a little train you build a train and it can pick up stuff it's great it's. I. I'm sure you will love it. I'm very excited by it. Um. <laughs> mm. So, how long do you think that this will take you to build? Um, I'm. I reckon it's probably going to be like an afternoon, but a better part of a day, actually. I'll say. Do you I, do you consider yourself good at building Lego? Oh yeah, really good. Uh, I mean, yeah. like um. I, I've got very good eyes for spotting pieces. Um, I put them together very promptly. It's, it's like a really weird job interview now. Yeah, um, you, you you describe yourself as above average in this area. Yes, I I would say that I, a grown man, am very good at assembling Lego. Perhaps it is my best skill. <laughs> and where do you see yourself in five years? Um, dead. Oh god! <laughs> <laughs> always, always start with that one in job interviews. Uh, they they fucking love it. I've heard. Um, <laughs> or um, or the alternative, uh, sleeping with your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I at the risk of being entirely off topic, I actually have the Lego passenger train as well, and I got the cargo train so I can connect them all up together and have like a little Lego train set. God, I'm not coming off well in this podcast, am I? I'm so <laughs> fucking sad. I'm happy. No, I'm happy with what a um, terrible human being I am. <laughs> I think that, you know, whatever gives you some joy is valid. That's what I that's what I believe. Like I f- I feel like you're allowed to have one frivolous hobby at least. Yeah. Like like that's allowed. Uh, speaking as someone who's more or less forcing you to record a podcast about a film that's almost 40 years old, I agree. <laughs> yeah, but so far that th- this podcast has cost the price of two bells 
to record. So that's yeah. The, uh, I can't remember how much they were now. I think I think they were four pounds thirty three each. I remember it being something weird like that mm-hmm. because I mean, um, the yeah the slightly more expensive bell um, had ring for sex written on it. Yes, and like mm. I I felt weird about <laughs> yeah. Mm. I felt weird about posting you that bell. <laughs> I mean, if you want to price this thing up, I, I am a professional composer, and I did make a uh, piece of intro and outro music for the, this podcast. And if I had been charging for that, I probably would have charged about a uh, hundred pounds, I think. So you got that as a freebie. That, that's true. Um, that's the trick, kids. Become friends with people who are good at creating things you aren't, and then you can use their services for free. That's terrible. That's terrible advice. <laughs> I mean, we haven't even got out of the introduction yet, and I, I've appeared like a monster on at least three occasions. <laughs> I was just going to say, look, I I did this for free because I am involved in this podcast, and <laughs> it would be weird for us to charge ourselves for the you- soundtrack for this podcast. <laughs> If your parents die, kids, just, you know, save money on a coffin by going to the funeral home and stealing one. (laughs) I think we should rapidly move on from (laughs) into the actual podcast before people rumble us and how terrible we are. Um, Uh, I, I I I think I'm coming off much worse. But yes, all right. All right. I strongly agree. We should move on. Yeah. We've spoken about how we are. Although, maybe we should retake that whole section. Mm. Um, (laughs) All right, it's time for us to introduce the concept. I believe it's your turn, Peter. It's not my turn, and we discussed this before recording. It's your turn. You're you're just hoping at every moment that I forget that it's your turn, but I'm not going to, and it's your turn. Well, fortunately, I wrote all the words I wanted to say down so uh, we can get through this in hopefully less than an hour. That Um, seems like cheating. (laughs) I am a very big fan of the 1982 sci-fi body horror film, The Thing. I watch the film very regularly, and I bask in all the media that surrounds it. Peter here is a very good friend of mine who was regrettably raised in a mine by bats and didn't see a film at all until he was 32 years old. In this experiment, we are watching the thing together in eight-minute chunks, then analysing each of those chunks in excruciating detail for reasons unknown. In addition to this, we each have a thing-dinger. I regretfully accept now that that is the name. And if any of us says the word thing, and we're not talking about the film, the monster, or this game, we are punished accordingly. I think that works. That's some words. Oh, uh, sorry. No, I, I was talking to you, but just communicating in very high frequencies. Um, <laughs> so you wouldn't have been able to hear. It's just a, a force of habit. Um, it's a hashtag bat life. Mm. So, um... <laughs> sorry, I was just thinking about how your backstory would reasonably be explained by you being raised by bat. You, you're good at music. You're quite tall that's good at music uh, well you know they like noises they emit noises makes it, I, I can assure you that's not the same thing <laughs> <laughs> you, you can emit noises bats can emit noises it all adds up mm. 
Have I started a conspiracy theory? Well, moving on again. Um, <laughs> oh, this episode's going to be five hours long, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we haven't even got to the discussion. Um, and, uh, well, I suppose before we get into the discussion of the episode, there's uh, usually another segment. Do we have another segment today? Um, yes, we do. However, I'm not vibing with the word segment. Ah, right. Okay. What are, what um, are we using this time? Could we go with portion? Portion. Mm, it's a little bit sexual, but I'm. Uh, I'm actually, happy no, with maybe, that. Maybe, maybe let's save that one because it's a little similar to the last one, which was partition. Oh um, yeah, partition diff- is more cold and technical. Portion yeah. is a bit sexy. Uh, is it? Well, I'm. I'm very certain I've heard at least one person refer to their genitalia as their portion. You got to do a voice with it, I think, as well. It. Uh, it sounds like something you, you're use in very bad erotica yeah i don't i don't think you know it's not turning me on i just think yeah (laughs) it's something that's been used yeah it you don't want to bring to mind something that's been i mean at least you usually don't want to bring to mind something that's been sliced up (laughs) (laughs) i've used it myself but i don't know why my junk is so popular as well my Mm. absolute trash my garbage yeah (laughs) This well, rotten bag of goods. That's that's true enough. Um, are we going to have to move on again? I think we are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> why why does this get worse every episode? Why why is this podcast just like literally charting my descent into madness? Uh, could we go with instance? Oh, I l- like it. Uh, I think it's technically correct, the best kind of correct. Yeah, mm. let's let's go with let's go with instance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So this instance of the po- that's really confusing. This instance of the podcast is called "Let's Not Talk About the Thing," a section in which we don't talk about the thing, basically to make the podcast slightly longer and for no other reason. Yes, because we need that this week. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we've started, so we're committed to this. Right. Um, I am going to talk to you about auteur director John Carpenter. Okay. You probably know him as the man who directed the thing, the podcast, the the film. What this podcast is about? Yeah, he didn't direct this podcast, which no. you could probably tell. Actually, <laughs> John Carpenter is an American film director, born in 1948. He's also been a producer, actor, screenwriter, and composer, and is most well-known for his work with horror, action, and science fiction films. Most films of Carpenter's career were initially commercial and critical failures, with the exception of The Fog, Escape from New York, and Starman. However, many of his films have come to be considered cult classics, and he has been acknowledged as an influential filmmaker. Films of his that are considered cult classics include Dark Star, which we mentioned last time, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, The Thing, you know, The Thing, that's that's the one, that's the one we're doing now. Christine, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, They Live, and In the Mouth of Madness. These are all great films. You know, uh, I, it's been a very, very long time since I've seen Big Trouble in Little China, but I did not actually know that that was a John Carpenter film. Do you know, I, I watched it last night, just randomly. I mean, literally randomly, I pressed the random movie button and <laughs> Big Trouble in Little China came and I was like, yeah, all right, I can do this. 
But yeah, I've I've hardly seen any of the films on that list. Um, I've seen, I think, some of Halloween. I've seen The Thing, obviously. Uh, I've seen a long time ago Big Trouble in Little China, but I could not really tell you anything about it. Big Trouble in Little China was made um, more or less because John Carpenter wanted to make a martial arts movie. Again, like The Thing, it wasn't massively successful like upon release, but like... I think John Carpenter has been constantly screwed over time and time again by release dates. I mean, we mentioned it earlier in this podcast, but the studio released The Thing two weeks after E.T. came out and on the same day as Blade Runner, whereas Big Trouble in Little China was released seven days before Aliens. So, (laughs) yeah, not ideal, really. After Big Trouble in Little China, he got sort of quite disillusioned with Hollywood films and just went on to only do independent stuff. He is also famous for composing or co-composing most of his film's music. At the 2019 Cannes Film Festival, the French Directors Guild presented him with a Golden Coach Award and described him as a creative genius of raw, fantastic, and spectacular emotions. So is he uh, officially retired now? Um, I think he's in sort of quasi-retirement. He... He said that he's happy to sort of come back and work on films, basically, if you give him money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he's actually rumoured to be in discussion with Blumhouse Productions on their new adaptation of Who Goes There, which will mean that if he goes ahead, he'll be directing another The Thing film. Wow. Because yeah. I, I feel like if he came back and made a, another film in the vein of some of the stuff that he is well known for, then that that would feel like quite a big deal now. Yeah. A lot of his cult classics have sort of been stewing in the public perception for a long time now. So I'm sort of hoping that he, um, he does come back on this Blumhouse thing, the new Mm. um, who goes there. His first major film as director was dark star, which is a science fiction comedy that he co-wrote with Dan O'Bannon, who later went on to write alien, basically cherry picking stuff from dark star for that. Mm. Um, I'm sure you know that the, story about dark star where they they wanted to have like a like a realistic looking alien but they had nowhere near the budget so it was basically a beach ball with flippers <laughs> yeah i think you've mentioned it before carpenter's films are characterized by minimalist lighting and photography static cameras use of steadicam and distinctive synthesized scores which i think we've touched on for the thing mm. uh, to date he's directed 18 films well, that was a good, uh, good John Carpenter summary. And as I say, yeah, it would be interesting to see what a modern version of a John Carpenter film would look like because it's really been a while now since we've seen something that was um, that was directed from him. Uh, last one was in. I, I'm just quickly scanning the Wikipedia page. 95? I think it was two thousand. I think it was two thousand and five. Um, oh, let me just check that because it's it's Ghosts of Mars, which might be two thousand and one actually. Oh yeah, this says yeah, including. But yeah, it's still been quite a while. There's even since two thousand and five, there's been quite a lot of changes in how mm. stuff gets made. And I just I, I wonder I wonder what a John Carpenter film would look like in twenty twenty. I'm gonna say twenty twenty one. Yeah, I do hope that they well, I mean they're they're not gonna produce a film in the next month (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, probably not even next year if they make a new the thing movie i'm gonna be all over that you know i am so (laughs) Mm. (laughs) if he's directing it even better i sort of hope he comes back to work with dean cundy um 
like his cinematography in the thing is excellent. Like it's, mm. it's, I think it's one of the things that really gives it its edge. Yeah, of course, because you always uh, there's always a tendency, and you find this with games and films and all all of these sorts of things, which are uh, essentially huge collaborations. Mm. To it's just this ma- one guy, yeah, yeah, uh, maybe, uh, and like their influence can't be underestimated. I mean, they are the director after all, but mm. um, I feel like the the kind of collaboration isn't given enough credit it's what makes the thing feel like the thing is not just john carpenter it's john carpenter working with these specific people who bring specific things to it exactly Mm. um i read a good quote about being a director quite recently but i can't remember where it was and it's or or what it was exactly but it's something like the um director isn't effectively has no role on the film at all like all they're doing is spinning plates Mm-hmm. Just making sure all the plates stay spinning all the time. <laughs> well, okay, so um, that's enough about John Carpenter for now. Now we enter the instance where we talk about the questions that you, Peter, had last time. I am so excited about this for reasons that you're about to explain, I think. I am. Uh, you had three questions last time, and I, I am going to give you the answers to these questions now. Question one, and possibly the most exciting of these questions, for reasons we'll get into. Like, are we are we clickbaiting this? I don't know. <laughs> what's uh, what's the mouth word equivalent of clickbait? I don't know because like it would be like fast forwarding to to the what we're going to be talking about, which I don't think we should be encouraging. <laughs> Just carry um, on listening. It will. It, it's going to happen any second. I would say in about thirty seconds, we're going to pleasure you. <laughs> um <laughs> the question was do antarctic bases have blood supplies and the answer surprisingly seems to be no i contacted the british antarctic survey to ask and i was genuinely delighted when they got back to me to answer so i heard back from a james miller who said blood supplies are not kept on station we would do all that we could to avoid requiring a blood transfusion, but in extremists, other team members may be considered as donors. I also found a form from the medical unit of the British Antarctic Survey, which suggests that they test everyone's blood type before they go, especially for people who are overwintering, to try and make sure they have as many blood types as possible covered. I, I was genuinely thrilled that they got back to us. Um, that It is very exciting that you actually managed to get a genuine reply on this. Um, a, real, a real science person answered a question of mine. I have to ask, on that last point, though, uh, you said as many different blood types as possible covered. What do you Because I thought, uh, wouldn't it be more advantageous if everyone was the same blood type? Well, yeah, but um, you've got to remember that, you know, if you have a couple of people who are the universal donor, right. that's fine, right? You, uh, you don't need that's to... That's true. If, if you've got somebody who's a fruity and weird blood type, like AB positive, you probably want to have some people who are the universal donor around as well, just in case. Fair enough. Of course, this is according to the British Antarctic Survey. We don't know the practices of all of the other Antarctic research no, groups. And indeed, it's like modern day, because um, I I couldn't genuinely say, if you were stocking an Antarctic base in the 1980s, say for, a, say for a popular science fiction horror film, yeah. I think that would have come around to my house and hit me. 
Come on, they got to be suspicious already. <laughs> they know about the thing, surely. <laughs> the British well, Antarctic Survey. I mean, we, as we've mentioned, I think before, it is like a famous tradition in Antarctica. If you're overwintering, the first night you watch the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, what I think we should do is get information from all of the Antarctic research groups that we can find worldwide. <laughs> um, get as detailed information as we can and use that to kind of set them against each other um, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and start kind of um, passive aggressively nitpicking their practices in relation to the practices of all of the other Antarctic <laughs> research group in in the hopes of um, stoking a massive rivalry between <laughs> the uh, Antarctic research groups and perhaps like an escalation of how many measures they take um, to <laughs> to protect themselves. Uh, Peter, we discussed this before the podcast and I will not let you use my podcast as a vector for starting a war in Antarctica. I, all I want is sort of an Antarctic technological slash medical arms race (laughs) all you'll end up with is all their twitter accounts smack talking each other (laughs) if if i had thought about this question before i wasted a genuine human being's time with it uh it would have turned out that not keeping blood actually makes sense because refrigerated human blood only lasts for about six weeks Ah. so it would be impossible to keep fresh supplies ready you can freeze it and thaw it out you know, as necessary. And that will means it will keep for about 10 years, I think I read. Um, But it's not anywhere near as good because, you know, as you freeze it, like ice crystals form in the cells and it destroys them. So it's not ideal. Got it. Oh, um, just a little side fact. Interestingly, I also found out that the Australian Antarctic Survey has a requirement that if you're a doctor who will be overwintering there, you have to have your appendix removed. Nice. It's to prevent an, another case like that of Leonid Rogozov, who we spoke about last time, the Russian doctor who had to perform an appendectomy on himself. So they just they just whip that right out. Yeah, they um, sending you. There was actually a case in an Australian Antarctic base where their one overwintering doctor did get appendicitis, and rather than having to perform surgery on themselves, they were expatriated back to somewhere with medical facilities at extreme cost and inconvenience <laughs> for everyone. I think it might be a once-bitten-twice-shy kind of deal. Uh, I think it's really proof that this is not somewhere that I personally ever want to spend any time in, that on balance it's easier just to rip your appendix out before going than just hope that you don't get appendicitis. I mean, I can sort of understand the justification for it. And it's only, you know, it's only if you're the only doctor who will be overwintering, you know. Yeah. Just Uh, the idea that when someone did the risk assessment of this, like the risks of doing an appendectomy now versus just hoping that you don't get appendicitis over the next couple of months, they were like, yeah, we should just, we should just take it out. That to me just suggests it really brings to to life the whole how remote and forbidding that of the world is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's one of the reasons I really want to visit. Actually, although I would really hope that I don't get appendicitis while I'm there, because mm, yeah. <laughs> you're not a doctor, and they're not going to do that for you. Um, uh, no, I mean, um, uh, I think if push comes to shove, I can probably get my own appendix out. Yeah, I won't survive, but <laughs> but 
but I can get that little sucker out. <laughs> Probably best not to shove. Um. <laughs> Your second question. How many shotguns do they have? So I went back and reviewed the footage. And inside the cabinet are four shotguns and two rifles. And it seems like there's space for one more gun. Hmm. The shotguns are Ithaca Model 37s, which is the longest continuously produced shotgun in U.S. history. It was introduced in 1937 and has been manufactured continuously to this day. One unique feature on the Ithaca 37 is that it both loads and ejects the shells from a port on the bottom. So it can be used by either left or right handed shooters. So you'd be able to use it, you left handed deviant. Uh, I can use either hand with most things. Hmm. The rifles are Heckler & Koch HK93A2 semi-automatic rifles. They were introduced in 1975. Uh, the rifle that's in the cabinet is the same rifle used at the start of the film by the Norwegians, which is interesting because Norway has never used that particular rifle. Hmm. Since we're talking about guns and we haven't mentioned it so far, I'm going to mention the fact that the gun that Gary carries uh, and that he gave up in the last episode is a Colt Trooper Mark III, a six-shot revolver which is manufactured between 1969 and 1983. Okay, but what about Blair's gun? We actually mentioned Blair's gun before. Oh. Yeah. Blair's handgun is a Colt Detective Special, third generation. It's a .38 revolver. Nice. Ah, and your last question, possibly most interestingly of all, who took the keys? Oh. So I prepared a who took the keys timeline. Are you excited? Uh, I'm very excited for your Who Took the Keys timeline. So we've got McCready, Blair, Knowles, Palmer, Childs, Copper, Norris, Bennings, Clark, Gary, Fuchs, and Windows. We start at about 46 minutes into the film. Windows mm -hmm. drops the keys, and he runs outside to Fuchs and McCready. Mm -hmm. At that point, Blair, Knowles, Palmer, Childs, Copper, Norris, Clark, and Gary are all unaccounted for, but it's only for literally a handful of seconds. Right. Then they chase Bennings outside and set off the alarm, which brings everyone there except Clark and Blair. It's interesting we didn't bring that up at the time when we were watching that episode, mm. but there are only 10 men there, including Bennings. Clark isn't there, and Blair isn't there either. They notice Blair, but they don't notice Clark. Right. McCready and Gary slip inside to talk, and then the same nine men decide to burn the bodies. Clark and Blair are still not accounted for. Mm. Fuchs, Mac, and Childs talk about how they can't find Blair. Then we see what is possibly Blair attack the helicopter. Immediately after that, everyone, including Clark, is involved in suppressing Blair. And then we're basically back up to the next known reappearance of the keys. Right. So the only people who are absent for a prolonged time during that section are Blair and Clark. However, when we're alone with McCready and Gary, anyone else could be doing anything. Right. Uh, so at the risk of just making stuff up, um, I think Norris for we're assuming he's been infected for some time now, finds the keys, does the blood crime, then pops them back on Gary's desk or just puts them back and waits for Windows to grab the keys and return them to Gary. That's the thing that seems most plausible to me. Heck you. <laughs> uh, that would be my assumption too. I don't know. I'm 100% confident that it's um, uh, Norris, but I think that that's the general story there. Yeah, that's the one that works for me. <laughs> All right. Well, those are some exciting questions. So yeah. now we move into the next instance of the podcast. Let's talk about the thing. Um, this is the section of the podcast where we actually talk about the thing. What happens next, Peter? You said McCready rewinds the recording and records something over it. And you were? Correct. You were correct. Well done. I mean, 
it's it's literally only predicting the next 11 seconds of film but okay i'll let you get away with it well i mean it's all i could do because as i explained to you just before we started recording i remember almost none of this <laughs> n- uh, none of the next eight moments yeah uh, they're, they're just oh don't start the moment and <laughs> this is this is just before it starts getting really interesting right so you know we built to a little crescendo of um burning bennings then there's a little bit of stuff that happens and then we go ramming our way through the end of the movie yes so i can i can sort of see this bit being a bit where you might tune out a little bit but it's interesting it's interesting to watch as we will get into i i think i must have tuned out a bit but but now that i've been paying attention to this whole section i feel like this is one of the most confusing eight minutes of the film because a bunch of stuff happens that Mm. isn't easy to um that isn't immediately explainable but the first one of those is what we just mentioned um which is that mccready does uh, erase the last bit of his recording and Mm. the question is why yes that is a good question and we will get to that shortly just before we start listening to those moments of the film we're going to review your infection tracker so we've got who's infected definitely norris who's maybe infected windows Mm -hmm. who's not infected blair we think he's been exposed but he's safe right now fuchs Knowles, clark gary and copper and uh who's dead bennings bennings is dead poor bennings So now with that out of the way, it's time for us to listen to one hour and four minutes to one hour and 12 minutes of The Thing. Are you ready? I am. Let's go. And we're back. And so what happens now, I have prepared a bulleted list of things that happen during this section of the film. Ding me. Fine. And for each of those things, I... <laughs> did you drop the bell? I am... <laughs> My arm's getting tired. Um... <laughs> for each of these bullet points, I will read it out, and we will discuss it if we have something to say, or I will just move on. It's that simple. MacReady erases the last bit of his recording. So, as we were just saying, why? Why would this happen? What's yeah. going through his mind at this point? Do you know... <laughs> literally the first question i've got written down here to ask you is why does mccready do this what's going through his mind <laughs> <laughs> as i correctly predicted it you can probably guess from that that it's something about the film that has stuck in my mind mm. uh watching it in the past uh in fact one of the few parts of this whole eight minutes that i do remember quite clearly is him going back and uh, raising that uh, comment that he made about no one trusts anyone and we're all uh, very tired or something like that and then replacing it with um what does he actually say here i think it's just uh there's nothing i can do uh and then he signs out yeah uh, it says we'll just have to wait or something like that mm. yeah, yeah. Uh, i was thinking about it as well and the only thing i can come up with is that it it seems very hopeless and maybe you know i mean if you were just to find this Mm. And it ended like that. Uh, maybe just a little bit more insane than you'd like. Mm. So maybe it would just make anyone who found the tape randomly just a little less likely to believe him. I don't know. I mean, like, um, it's what he leaves it with is a lot more formal. Yeah. 
Yeah, maybe it's that he felt a bit exposed in that moment. <laughs> and, mm, yeah, and just wanted to say something that was um, that there was a bit more guarded. Yeah, I rather like how this ends with a uh, good creepy shot of Macready from behind through the doorway, which fades to black. Mm. I think it's good to shooting there because it makes you sort of feel like he's being watched, even though obviously there's nobody there. Right? Yeah, it's um, it's an it's an interesting little bit. I I, I feel feel like um. I always kind of wonder what the point of just lingering on that re-recording that last bit was, uh, but mm. I think I think it is just a bit of characterization that they're doing there. Mm. McCready talks to Fuchs about the test. So now I, I asked you to keep an eye on what Fuchs does when he's surprised, and he grabs a flask. Why does he grab the flask, Peter? I don't know. Explain to me why he grabs a flask. The actor later said it's supposed to be a flask of acid, which is used to protect him if he was mm. under attack. He does let it go, though, which suggests that he trusts MacReady still at this point. Yeah, I did um, I did think, well, maybe his whole plan was to fling it at, uh, at whoever had entered, and maybe that was the reason that he grabbed it. But mm. um, I also wondered, okay, could it be that there was something incriminating in that flask, and he instinct, <laughs> his hand instinctively went to it? But I don't really think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> his flask, which he carefully turns away to hide the label, which says, thing evidence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think acid is an interesting point. And I, I don't know, I'd have liked it made a little more clear than what they do in the film. It's- Melting the thing with acid does seem like a good idea to me. Mm, seems um, like it could work. Yeah. The shot with Fuchs in the foreground and McCready in the background is actually an interesting one because it's a split diopter shot, meaning that the character in the foreground and background are in focus at the same time, and the darkness in the middle you know, hides the effect that they're doing. Mm. This is interesting. I mean, you do rarely see that in films, like you know, both the foreground and the background in focus at the same time. Yeah. I certainly didn't notice it. Fuchs has some ideas. He says, a small particle can take you over, so everyone should prepare their own meals and only eat out of cans. I think that's a good idea, but like, maybe the horse has bolted at this point. I don't know. Yeah, it's one of those things that are sort of like, oh, well, that would have been great if we'd been doing that already. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe you could uh, send a... Um, the message to the British Antarctic sur- Survey and say, do they all prepare their own meals and eat out of cans? Um, <laughs> I'm not bothering them anymore. I've got my one answer. I'm happy. <laughs> you can't come up with any more questions that require me to bother scientists. <laughs> because, yeah, it seems like something that you'd have to have been doing from, from the start. If he's genuinely that worried about just one cell of this thing getting near someone. I think Mm. that a lot of people are in some kind of trouble at this point. Um, Yeah. We've discussed it a lot before, like whether or not just a single particle of the thing getting onto you is game over, you know, in the long run. Yeah. In which case I think they're all doomed ultimately. Mm. The lights flicker and go out and Fuchs lights a candle. It's very unclear here, but time is supposed to have gone by. So it's not like, an instant after MacReady left the room, mm. like some time has gone by. But we can talk about the weird time passing in the scene in a little bit. Yeah, I, I certainly didn't notice that really any time was supposed to have passed. Mm. Suddenly a shadow moves by the door. It's accompanied by a special noise as well. Yeah, a, a great little musical sting. Yeah, there's a little bit of a... I, I don't even know whether it's a musical sting or whether it's supposed to be a sound that's actually 
being made by something. No, it's, I, it's just... I think it's clear it's non-diegetic. I don't think like the thing has just rocked up and gone. <laughs> I don't know though, because it's it's different to the other sorts of sounds that you hear in the um, in the film, and it's kind of mixed in with sound effect of it hurrying past, and it's very quick. And I, I'm not sure actually. I don't know whether it's supposed to be just kind of an exaggerated sound effect that's supposed to make it seem like whatever has passed is definitely there's something going on with it. I, I that that's been my read yeah. of it each time I've seen this. I think is is, is that it. I I have assumed that whatever has gone past is a bad thing. Questionable. Um, no, no, I mean, I mean a bad thing. Capital, capital T. T. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's interesting, really, because I read it completely the opposite way. Because the mm. the silhouette that goes past is definitely a human outline. There's no, mm-hmm. you know, waving tendrils or whatever. And yeah. I I think like maybe citation needed here, but like if. If I was in a darkened room and a thing went by the door and went, I'd shut the fucking door. (laughs) I wouldn't follow it outside. Remember, he thinks it's a person. He says, who's there? I I guess you could could question whether you heard what you heard, though. (laughs) You you wouldn't necessarily assume that's what you heard. Uh, And uh, yeah, it is a human figure but you don't know how human it's not it's just a silhouette it could have those pepper army fingers for all we know <laughs> um yeah I, I definitely think it's a it's a musical sting anyway this is the second of four jump scares in the film and uh like on a little personal note i always enjoy watching other people at this bit of the film when i'm seeing it in the cinema because <laughs> <laughs> there's always somebody who doesn't know it's coming fuchs chases the shadows outside with a flare he finds a pair of shredded clothes with R.J. McCready written on them. <gasps> Gasp! Has our hero come to a sticky end? Well, probably not. <laughs> I'm of the opinion that this whole thing, and there's going to be a bit more of it later, um, but this whole thing has to be a setup. Um, yeah, I agree entirely. I don't think he's a thing at this point. I think he's being set up. Yeah, I mean, l- last time that we saw... Um, a bunch of shredded clothes in the place where someone had been attacked by the thing uh, and not just the, the, the drawers that were hidden in a, a bin or something. It was Bennings and it was on the seat and there was, there was like a bunch of shredded clothes and also just blood everywhere. Blood and uh, slime. Yeah. And, uh, and, and all of that kind of business here. It's just a completely, dry set of clothes with mm. some rips in it and no blood anywhere to be seen on the snow or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, it is an interesting point. I mean, um, I've never really put together the fact that they there's just no blood stains or anything on them. It's literally just a, a shredded piece of clothes with RJ McCready on it. It has to be someone setting him up. We cut back inside to McCready talking to the men. Fuchs is missing. So McCready says the lights were out in the lab for over an hour. And so that's where this sort of time is starting to slip a bit here. Yeah. It's very interesting filmmaking because like, if you watch the preceding three minutes or so, there's nothing to really to suggest that a lot of time has gone by between each of these shots. It's literally no. McCready in the doorway. There's darkness. Fuchs is outside. And then McCready is saying an hour has passed. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about it, honestly, because I like to 
feel like I understand the sequence of events, you know? Yeah, it, uh, it, 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 I think it is the most confusing passage of time bit in the whole film. In the original script, the skip time here is clearer because the lights go out and everyone reacts to them. Because here we only get the perspective of, um, you know, they're saying the lights were out for an hour, something happened to Fuchs. And it's like, well, what happened to the rest of you guys during that time? Yeah. Um, but in the script and the novelization, everyone gets a little bit of stuff to do. Uh, Gary and Clark escape their bonds for a little bit before being recaptured when the lights are turned back on. So there's a, a little bit of more suspicion on Gary and Clark's like, why Why did you guys go missing while the lights were off? Right. In this scene, everyone is still here in the rec room. So the only people unaccounted for at this point are Fuchs and Blair. Something I noticed is that McCready's dialogue doesn't seem to quite sync up with with words here. So there's possibly dubbed to cover a script change. Okay. Palmer doesn't want to go with Windows. Um, why do we think this is? Yeah, why doesn't he trust Windows specifically? He he really has a hard-on through the rest of the film for not trusting Windows. So why... I mean, the most suspicious thing we've seen Windows do at this point is run to grab the gun. Yeah. But as we spoke about last time, that seems really more like a panicky... I've got to defend myself thing than a um I'm waiting for you to ding me. Oh. Than a suspicious activity. I mean it's not covert or anything. He literally just breaks and runs for the gun. Yeah, maybe he just doesn't want to be left with someone who's go just going to be unpredictable in that way. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you say that, but even in the later bits of this scene, he does not Palmer thinks that Windows has been taken over. I'm totally sure of that at this point. Hmm. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit, I guess. But he, yeah, he's very mistrusting of him, and we're not entirely sure why. McCready orders them all to go look for Fuchs. So this is where the twenty-minute time limit that we were discussing last time comes in. They're all going to go and do different things, but they're all going to come back within twenty minutes. Anyone who's not here within twenty minutes, immediately very suspect. Yeah, and I think this is a thing as well, which. Um thank you uh which <laughs> diverts suspicion away from macready because why would he go with the plan of everyone go outside and meticulously search the grounds if he knew there were shredded clothes there with his name on waiting to be found uh, yeah <laughs> yeah why would he have them go for a wander in the place where he knew he'd done his dirty crime yeah <laughs> did you see during this scene, the second of the two female appearances in the film. Uh, I did not. Uh, there's a Vietnam-era sexually transmitted illness poster in the background of the rec room. Ah. Um, it's a woman with a badge on it saying, they aren't labelled, chum, and it's suggesting that you don't catch VD. <laughs> that's it, that's it, that's the other female influence in the film the first of course being the chess computer and yet vd the least of their worries at the moment <laughs> um they they mention it in the director's commentary and i don't really want to dwell on it too much but um the thing came out about the same time as the aids crisis and they were drawing some parallels between that mm. no there was a new disease no nobody knew how you got it nobody knew where it was coming from or how you catch it that sort of thing Probably wouldn't be the framing nowadays, though, because you wouldn't want that kind of stigma. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, exactly. McCready, Knowles, and Windows go to check on Blair. So 
Blair thinks that Fuchs has been taken over. MacReady's mm. like, have you seen Fuchs? And he's like, it ain't Fuchs. <laughs> I mean, my whole question is, how would he even know? Like, yeah. what, what, why is he saying that at this point? I think it's more readable as um, he doesn't know Fuchs is missing. They've said Fuchs is missing. He's gone, well, obviously it's no longer Fuchs. I don't, yeah. I don't think he has any additional knowledge beyond going, yeah, well, I wouldn't waste my time looking for him. You know what I mean? Right. No, okay. That, that does make more sense, actually. Mm. Uh, but like, besides as a result of this whole conversation which is the only bit of this eight minutes that i remember in detail i uh i am very suspicious of blair now at this point (laughs) (laughs) um he's been alone for some time um things Mm. have been roaming around outside we know this i'm not sure whether to ding you for things uh i'll let you off i i think that's allowed um he is now extremely eager to come inside, despite being very aware of the risks. Uh, there's a visible noose um, <laughs> in the uh, window, uh, which means he was definitely considering hanging himself at some point, but now doesn't want to at all and claims that he's feeling much better. See, I'm, I'm going to stop you there for a second, because my thinking on the noose is slightly different. Oh, okay. Um, I I think it makes more sense if you see it as um, Blair understands that if something comes for him, he's doomed. Right? They've locked him in a shed with no weapons or anything. Right. So if the thing like wrenches the door open, what can he do? Right. So he's put the noose there as the only way of, you know, he's going to try and end his own life before it gets to him. Right. So that's that's what I'm reading the noose as. Like if. If MacReady opened that hatch and he'd gone, hey, Blair, Blair, then, oh, sorry, what was the noise? (laughs) Uh, Then Blair would have stuck his head through that noose and killed himself. I don't know, though, because that that seems like a really inefficient way to quickly kill yourself. Of course, of course. But they haven't really left him with anything in the shed. They took his gun, anything he has to defend himself. Mm. I mean, I, I wouldn't leave a person who has murderous possibly suicidal intent alone with anything they could use to kill themselves but they've left him with enough rope to build a noose that's interesting i don't know i feel like he could have found something there that mm. he could have used as a sharp object to well uh, I, I i i'm not i'm not sure what the purpose of the the noose is in in this case i'm not i'm not sure whether he had just decided uh, that he might uh, kill himself but what i do know is that there's been things uh wandering outside mm. uh, and that they probably know that he's alone there in mm. that hut and that they could have got in there at some point and converted him enough time has passed for that to happen yeah um... so i am pretty suspicious of blair at this point I, I agree, and I understand. I mean, I just want to touch on the noose one more time mm. before we uh, before we move on a little bit, and um, that's just to say that it's very passive. Like, if they'd opened the window and Blair had had like a razor sharp piece of glass that had gone from somewhere, right? Yeah, that is an offensive weapon. Like, yeah. you know, if they came in, he could attack them with it. But mm-hmm. if he's built a noose. The only thing he can do, realistically, is kill himself. 
the only instance he can do yeah. is kill himself. He can't like whip a noose over one of their necks and like throttle them. I mean, he probably could. He's a cowboy, but yeah. <laughs> but let's not get into that. Uh, so it it just strikes me as like you know, uh, it's just a it's very hopeless. I yeah. mean, there's no I can defend myself with this. It's that this is the end. Like I know if something is coming through that door and it's not a human being then i have to end my own life yeah i mean i guess the other aspect to this is that i just don't believe that if he was in a situation where a thing came in and attacked him that he would be able to complete Pull the, the whole thing off, plan yeah. uh, before being converted so at least from that perspective i i don't think it would have been effective Mm. Uh, I think there's a strong chance that he has now been uh, infected. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you that it's not rational, but the last actions we saw Blair taking were hardly the most yeah. rational. Um, That's true. Just two more notes here. I've got the nooses described in the director's commentary as a little touch from Bill Lancaster, the screenwriter. Hmm. And Blair says he's much better now. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think, we're, I think we're all inclined to disagree with in different ways. Yeah, I mean, like, no matter which way you slice it, he's definitely not much better now. Uh, <laughs> but the my whole read of it is strongly um, skewed towards, oh, yeah, I'm much better now, and I'm definitely not the thing, honestly, Governor. <laughs> um, I, I don't even know what a thing is. Never heard of it. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, he's uh, very suspicious to me at this point. Returning to the base, Windows notices Fuchs' remains on the ground. Interestingly, Fuchs had a different death in the original screenplay. They didn't find his body, only later finding it in the greenhouse where Palmer and Childs grow their weed, with the shovel sticking out of his chest. This was actually filmed, but has never been released. Mm. So um, I did not, I definitely didn't remember that he uh, is killed here. So he's, ki- he's killed off screen, basically. Um, yeah. My sense was that he was killed almost in the same location where he discovered the clothing before. It does it does seem to be almost exactly the same place, doesn't it? Yeah. It's it's almost as if the clothing, the shredded clothing clothing was left there as as bait in this instance mm. to get them to to kind of pause and stop there, although I don't know why that would be necessary. They identify the body from his glasses and wonder why it would burn him. McCready says maybe he burned himself before it could get to him. What is the film trying to say here? I mean, the last time we saw Fuchs, he'd found McCready's torn clothes. Mm. Now we find his burned body. Is the film trying to say that McCready saw him with the clothes and came out and burned him with a flare? I'm I'm not really sure what it's trying to get at. Like, um, as like you say, it does seem like the clothes seem to have been left as a trap, right? Yeah. Uh, and we'll find out, like, because they, they find Fuchs's body and there's no sign of the clothes, but we find out what happens to the clothes in, like, a couple of moments. So, yeah, because of what happens later, it does suggest that he wasn't burned while he was just there holding the clothes. Hmm. So there must have been... But again, there's not a lot of, like, blood or anything on the ground or anything like that. It's just burned hmm. remains. Um, so... Um, but presumably some sort of altercation took place, but not at the same moment that he was examining these clothes because they're not burned. 
Yeah, the fate of Fuchs is a really interesting thing for me because um, uh, we'll get to it in a moment. But like the clothes that he finds have to find their way up into Macready's shack now. Yeah. So the only thing that really makes logical sense for me here is um, I was thinking about it, but it doesn't even make sense. I mean, if I found if I went out into the snow and I found those, I would bring them to the others as quickly as possible. Mm. The I was going to say the only thing that makes sense is if Fuke sees the light in the cabin that Macready sees and goes up there to investigate. But why would he do that? That doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, no, I mean Fuchs's behavior is a little bit weird to me here, anyway, because he goes following the shadow. Yeah, and I would have just gone to the rec room as quickly as possible, like running, probably screaming, maybe weeing a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it it was a, it was a bad decision all around. My best guess of what happens here is that uh, very shortly after it cuts away, um, uh, the thing emerges and attacks Fuchs. In the process, he probably uh, drops the shredded clothes somewhere, mm. uh, and then um, while it is trying to convert him he realizes what's happening and does try to set fire to himself with the flare that he's holding. Mm. And in fact, successfully sets fire to himself. This uh, startles the thing that's trying to take him over who withdraws while Fuchs burns. And uh, I don't know how he went up so easily. Maybe there's oil involved at some point as well. I don't know. Um, Um, It's actually covered in the director's commentary. Fuchs uh, always like covers himself in petrol every morning it's um it's not really covered i'm sorry i'm <laughs> just making this up uh and then so the the other thing gets away um no yeah I, I i know i know i'm sorry i uh i've it's just a reflex now <laughs> uh and uh takes the shredded clothes uh with him in order to dispose of them near MacReady's hut. Um, the only way you can read it, really, is that the thing goes and grabs those clothes in MacReady's shack, shreds them, uh, leaves them out in the snow, sees Fuchs come out and get them, kills them, goes, whoa, what a wizard wheeze, and then goes and puts them in the <laughs> in the shack. Yeah. He's like, come on, this, this is definitely going to work more than once. I'll use these again. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, the thing at this point is hoping not to infect MacReady just so it can keep using this trick (laughs) (laughs) over and over. They send Windows inside to tell everyone they found the body. MacReady and Knowles go up to check his shack. So if you're seeing this for the first time, then it really looks like Knowles' goose is cooked at this point, right? There's all this evidence pointing to MacReady, and MacReady's like, hey, Knowles, why don't we go over here somewhere quiet and alone? (laughs) (laughs) If we're thinking that MacReady isn't a thing at this point, then who turns on the light and why? Blair, maybe? Um, Absent Norris? Possibly, yeah. We don't know where Norris is at the moment, do we? Mm. Well, I mean, we're assuming he's in the rec room with everybody, but that was MacReady's last instruction to him. Um, Norris, keep an eye on those guys if any of them move Fryam. But they are all sedated. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. So he could... Then again, if he's on his own with those and they're sedated... (laughs) <laughs> oops you might have put all your eggs in the wrong basket <laughs> yeah um that would be a worry too um mm. 
but I'm pretty sure that at the moment Gary is not infected, so that that didn't yeah. happen. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure they're all sedated. The doc is asleep, and I think Clark is sedated, but I'm not sure Gary is. I think they're all being given a little morphine just to keep them quiet at this point. Right, but I'm not sure that they're all like you know unconscious. There's actually a scene in the shack. I don't know if it was filmed. But they find the whole roof is missing and snow is covering everything and they look around a little bit inside for, you know, whatever turned the light on. Yeah. And Knowles is attacked by the 13th character in the movie who somehow didn't make it into the final cut. Mm. McCready's inflatable sex doll. Uh. She's partially deflated and blows around scaring Knowles. <laughs> yeah, her name is Esperanza. Delightful. She's all throughout the script and appears in some of the production stills, but sadly she just didn't make it into the final cut. It's too bad, too bad. We'll just have to live with the chess um, <laughs> yeah, robot the, and the poster. In the original script, she's she's his opponent for chess. Ah. <laughs> That's why he blows her up, probably. Uh, mm. Let's not dwell on that. We cut to later. Charles is looking out at McCready's shack. The lights are out, and they've been gone for 45 minutes. We end with a close-up here of Norris, and he seems to be suffering, like his heart hurts, his chest hurts, rather. Yeah. In the novelization, like his chest pain is called out by Copper, who wants to help him and tells him to take it easy. And he's like, well, you know, after all this is over, we'll have to check on that old heart of yours. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it's a show-don't-tell thing, I don't know. The men start to seal up the exterior doors. Before nailing shut a door, Norris sees someone outside and calls for help. His chest hurts. So, I mean, this is what we were talking about before, where if we uh, are uh, carrying on under the s assumption that he is a thing, hmm. then we also have to believe that he's uh, imitating these symptoms perfectly. And I think that we're getting to the moment where his thingness is going to be revealed soon. <laughs> yeah, uh, very and soon, very soon. And so I do believe that at this point, he has to be a thing. Yeah, it, it raises an interesting point that clearly Norris has a heart condition. The thing has mm. copied his body. The yeah. heart is damaged in some way. And it hasn't. It either doesn't know or it's chosen to leave it damaged as it is. Maybe it doesn't know what i mean that's ridiculous it must know what the heart is for i mean it you know it simulates the whole body so well it, 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 he knows what norris knows right yeah, so he knows yeah, that exactly. he's got a heart problem yeah so i mean so it must um I mean, I mean it must be just for the purposes of camouflage i mean there's no reason it would copy a deliberate flaw unless like norris suddenly being hale and hearty would really give the game away yeah and i guess it's just not at least not yet competent enough to be able to um like just substitute in someone else's heart um, <laughs> yeah. or some something. nightmare organ that's similar yeah probably just can't really achieve that at the moment maybe if it uh assimilated some more humans it could have a go at that sort of thing but um uh i mean we've definitely seen them do kind of combinations of creatures mm. So presumably it's possible just to kind of whip out that heart and replace it with a good heart as the thing. Interestingly, in one of the short stories that got published quite recently, we've spoken about the Frozen Hell manuscript being found and republished. But because mm. the Kickstarter for that was so wildly successful, John Bettencourt, the guy who found the manuscript, I'm not sure if he actually found the manuscript, but he arranged the whole Kickstarter and everything. 
he had a book published with a collection of short stories set in the you know who goes there the thing universe um and in one of them they're studying the thing as a potential of doing transplants right because it can mimic human tissue and it can mimic it perfectly why not use it to produce hearts on demand you know that won't ever be rejected it's a really interesting concept i thought mm. some of the stories in that book are better than others obviously but i quite enjoy it the collection is called short things if you want to go and look it up all right Norse hammers on the door and is let in the men are ready to burn him they want to know where macready is Knowles found MacReady's shredded clothes and cut him loose of the safety line. Mm. So now, is Knowles suspicious here, or sus, as the kids say? Or well, is there just a complicated plot to set up MacReady? I mean, I didn't think of it before, but maybe he is suspicious. I don't know, though, because if he was on the safety line, then he would have had... Because I don't think I don't necessarily think he was infected before. I don't know. Mm. I, 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 I didn't have a strong opinion either way about him before. I think if he is suspicious, then he's been suspicious for a while now. Yeah, it, it's an interesting point that we've we've never really spoken in that depth about Knowles. But he does spend a lot of his time away from everybody else in the camp because he's the only cook in the kitchen all the time cooking their meals. Yeah. So... It's not beyond the realms of plausibility that someone could have gotten to him. Mm -hmm. And because of all the time that's passed during this uh, section, it's it's unclear to me. I I think a lot of people are now under suspicion. There's only a few people that I wouldn't necessarily put in that category at the moment. I I think McCready is safe because um, of having been set up. I think that the three tied to the chair are probably safe as well, just Mm. because I feel like they weren't infected when they got tied to the chairs. (laughs) It was a good idea, but bad execution. uh, And I don't think that that has happened since, because I think if it had happened since, then all three of them would be infected and i just don't think that's true yeah um uh but apart from that i think pretty much everyone is Mm. under suspicion at this point everyone has had enough time where something could have happened to them quite quite uh so uh he could have been infected at some point earlier and then he could have said okay now this is my perfect opportunity to put all of the suspicion on McCready. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut loose from him. I'm going to run back with these shredded clothes that I have access to Mm. and know where they are. So he could pick them up on the way or he could, um, or maybe he already had them or whatever it is, whatever the story is. I mean, it's Uh, interesting. And we've mentioned it before that Knowles is the only person that finds this mysterious clothing throughout the film. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, aside from Fuchs, but Fuchs dies. So he, no one knows. (laughs) And, and so, yeah, it would be a perfectly good plan to um, to run back and say, ha, look what I found. Now burn McCready, the most competent person in the base, as soon as he comes <laughs> back in. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I'm looking at Knowles in an entirely new... I, previously, I just saw him as naive, but um, mm. I don't know. I mean, also, I'm reasonably sure in like about 10 minutes, it's going to be proven that he's human thinking about it. So, uh, right. Well, uh, <laughs> well, I didn't oh, that was that. a really exciting theory. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't remember that, but it's, uh, it's, it's 
definitely an interesting thought. There, there, there is reason to be suspicious of yeah, uh, a lot, a uh, lot. of North motives at this point. <laughs> oh, I've made myself sad. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone starts to fight. Very interestingly, Norris screams, "That's what it wants to put us against each other." Hmm, it is yeah. what you, you want, Norris. Yes. <laughs> yeah, interesting thing to say. It's like. I've always got to think of that. Is like I can't take everything that everyone says at, uh, at face value, because uh, usually when someone says something like that, I'd I'd say something like, "Well, why would you be saying that if you were infected?" Mm. Um, because uh, you don't want to kind of shine a light on your own strategy too much, right? <laughs> but you know, you've also got to seem like you are trying to shine a light on what the strategy yeah, might be. It's, it, it's it's like playing one of these hidden role yeah. games. You, you've really got to walk a fine line between acting in character enough and also trying to achieve your sinister goal. Yeah. So he's probably just thinking, okay, what would I say if I was actually Norris at this point? I'd probably try and get everyone to calm down. Yeah. <laughs> And maybe also, come to think of it, he might also just be aware that this is having some sort of effect on his heart. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's interesting. And is concerned that if he is put out of action by this heart, he will have to give himself away. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So there's sort of a genuine wish to calm, make things simmer down at this point. <laughs> Please calm down. All this adrenaline is having a negative effect on my host. I uh, mean... Yeah. <laughs> this is ruining my disguise. <laughs> Look, I've grown a tail. This is yeah. all your fault. <laughs> Behind them, the door handle starts to turn. The director's commentary, John Carpenter, says that this is a cheap horror movie scare, but that's the point they were at. And <laughs> also that this is his favorite section of the film, all the way from here through to the blood tests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I agree. It's 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 a great little bit of the movie. All right. And that is the end of that's, these moments. That's all the moments that we've got time for. Um, so... Yeah, so now I have three questions for you, Peter. All right. What happens next? I did a little dance to match that, but you can't see it because this is a podcast. You'll have to imagine it. It was very evocative. Mm, I... Oh, I, I dinged How by mistake. How dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happens next um, is the short answer. The slightly more elaborate answer is, well, I don't know who is on the other side of that door, and I've lost track, so I can't think about whether it could be anyone else apart from MacReady. Mm. Um, but I have a feeling that whoever comes in, the business of dealing with them is going to get interrupted by Norris having a heart episode. So you're saying uh, someone comes in from outside and Norris has a heart attack. Yeah, and then that kind of interrupts all of the arguing about what to do about it that they were having before because they suddenly have a patient to deal with. And what that means is that they he gets r rushed into the medical room. Makes sense to me. I mean, I, I know what happens next because I've seen the film mm. a lot. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I can't tell you until next time. So, the infection tracker. Who's infected? I assume that you're leaving Norris on there? Uh, I am leaving Norris on there. Um, and I think I'm going to keep everything else the same apart from... <sighs> you were very sure about Blair earlier on. Uh, yeah, so Blair, I'm going to move to... I, I think Blair is infected now. I'm, I'm going to go right. with that. He's been promoted. Blair is infected now. Um, I do think probably someone else is infected as well. Hmm. Um, but I don't know who at the moment. So I'm going to put McCready and those three tied up in the not infected pile still. So um, McCready, Gary... Copper and Clark. Yeah. And then I am going to put everyone else who I'm not saying is definitely a thing and who is not dead into the maybe column now. Okay. So then that leaves our chart looking like this. Who's infected? Norris and Blair. Who's maybe infected? Windows, Knowles, Palmer and Childs. Who's not infected? McCready, Gary, Copper and Clark. And who's dead? Bennings, and joining him, poor old Fuchs. Mm-hmm. Well, then it just remains for me to ask you, how are you feeling about the film so far? I did another dance. Why am I dancing today? Well, uh, I mean, I mean, before uh, I answer that, what I want to ask you obliquely, because I don't want it to influence me too much, is how similar is your list of who is infected to mine <laughs> at the moment, like your personal one? Um. Do you, do you know I don't have one? I, I've do never you, really sat through this movie and tried to prepare a uh, a detailed analysis uh, of who is infected. I mean, that's why I got all excited a moment ago when we were talking about Knowles, and we're like, oh, actually, he's probably not infected because of mysterious future knowledge. I thought at some... though, I mean, I would I would say I I agree with this, mm. although, <sighs> mm, I don't know. There are two people I think are infected at this right. point but it'll give the game away if I tell you. Yeah, no, that that's fair yeah. enough. There, there's some future knowledge things that I'm sure I'm not remembering. Yeah, but, um, yeah. Uh, you, def- you definitely don't remember at least one of these people. Yeah. Because um, otherwise you certainly would have brought it up by now. But my list is basically the same as yours with two more names moved from the maybes to the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a kind of tactic which is would be terrible if I was actually in this situation, I tend to be inclined to give people the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so, so does Fuchs, and look what happened to him. <laughs> yeah, I tend to be a, a, a more of an optimist about who is mm. infected. I, I don't, I, I tend to prefer to think that they're not infected unless I've been a given a very good reason to think that they are. Uh, you say that, and that's how you end up full of tendrils. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying that it's a good approach, but it is nevertheless my approach for this podcast. So, in the final instance of this podcast, I must ask you what you have thinking What you have thinking of the movie so far. What do you have thinking? Well, what do you have, I... What do you have I, thinking? I have thinking um, that it's... Um, uh, <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, I have thinking that <laughs> I really did think that I would be better at 
keeping track of who is infected or not. Mm. I thought that I'd have an idea for everyone, but I don't think that I remembered how much skipping about in time shenanigans, how many yeah. opportunities there were for people to be on their own. And uh, I, on a close look at the film, I think it's still very difficult to tell who is uh, infected or not. And to me, that makes it very effective. I Because going into this, I wasn't really sure whether it was the sort of film where if you looked at, like a mystery film, if you looked at all the clues yeah. really closely, you could put it together. But it, it's not that. You're not supposed to be able to figure it out. It makes you feel very uneasy about the whole thing, even knowing how the whole film turns out. I was going to say, and I think it, I think it might be one of the things that gives it its sort of fuck you. Uh, it's long term appeal is that people yeah. can endlessly debate who transforms when, who is assimilated where, and because there's no official timeline. I mean, even John Carpenter said they just didn't have one. They they had a very a very vague one, but they never really yeah. worked out who was infected when and by whom. That so, uh, it just leads itself open to endless speculation from the fans and that's probably one of the reasons that they talk about it forever <laughs> mm. yeah but of course we wouldn't do that he certainly wouldn't be no i don't know like 15 hours into this and not finished yet <laughs> no as i mentioned surely when it's done and all put together the longest in-depth conversation about the thing that has ever been committed to a recording and uh, then I can be placed in my The Thing-style longboat and pushed out to sea and burn, yeah. I can only assume. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I've been enjoying it. Uh, once again, I I do think that if there's anything of any sort of complexity and you look at it in detail, it's going to start to become interesting. So I do think that I'm being tricked into <laughs> into getting into this now by, by your wily tactics but well i can't say it isn't it, it isn't working i am enjoying this deep dive into the thing in my defense i'm nowhere near smart enough to pull off a ruse of this kind <laughs> <laughs> well then that just leaves the very last instance that's such a weird word we're never using one like that again um mm. of, of this podcast <laughs> wherein I will say that I am available on the internet, that's also a weird way of putting it, uh, at the locations that basically will start Kieran J. Walsh, and you can be found on the internet anywhere that good kestrels are served with hot pie. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, kestrel pie. Kestrel like the bird, and pie like the irrational number, and not the food. Not the food, no. Just remember pie, but subtract e. And by e, I don't mean the natural logarithm. Um, I think I've made it more confusing. Kestrel pie. Yeah, okay. Um, all right, well, thank you again for joining me on another cold, miserable day to discuss the thing. Thank you very much, Peter. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.